from Mark chapter 1, verse 21 down through verse 28, and I've asked Bob Mina if he would ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Let us pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you brought us here safely this morning willing minds and willing hearts to come and worship you. Father, we're so thankful that we can be here under the hearing of your word brought to us this morning through your servant Mark. We would pray that you would uh, be with Mark as he preaches on this passage. Uh, difficult, yes, Father, but uh, guidance through the Holy Spirit that you would give us understanding and awareness of, of what this teaching is, Father. We thank you and we praise you. We ask for your blessing now upon this time of your service. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> miracles. What do we think about miracles? I think in our day we kind of have that flippant idea. We kind of talk about miracles, perhaps we're not as, as uh, Miracle Max in the Prince's Bride, you know, giving the big chocolate pill, and his wife asks, will it work? Well, it'll take a miracle. Or when I worked in industry for the little tire factory south of town, there was a saying going among the engineers, from the outside, it's amazing. From the inside, it's a miracle. <laughs> and I can remember when I first encountered Jefferson's Bible, or at least a history of Jefferson's Bible, where he performed exorcism, or rather he performed an exercise where he took his scissors and he cut out every passage where Jesus performed a miracle. And I guess I'm naive enough to think that most commentators are going to assume that miracles are real and that demons are real, and yet I find that that's not true. And there is still, as I can understand, debate among theologians as to whether there is such a thing as demon possession. And yet here we are confronted with these things in the Holy Scriptures. When we look at Scripture, we know that wonders and signs were attributed to Satan and his workers. Go back to Egypt and Pharaoh's magicians 
They were performing tricks and sleight of hand, and it looked just like what Aaron and Moses were doing with the frogs and the blood and all of those things. And yet, we understand from the scriptures that they were only elements that imitated miracles. But we understand, as one commentator put it, the kingdom of lies has wonders just as the kingdom of truth. But the question, I think, is, well, what good comes of these, or what was the purpose of performing these things? And I guess, again, I believe in Scripture we see that God has designed miracles for the highest good and for the perfecting of his children. Miracles cannot be appealed to, however, as proof of doctrine. It can only put a worker of miracles into one of two categories. Either they are from heaven or they are from hell. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, the instructions through Moses were to the people, how do you understand a prophet or a dreamer who gives you a sign and a wonder? And he says, you need to listen to what they say. He says, if they say, let us go after one another and other gods and serve them, Moses said, he is to be put to death because he is leading you to another gospel. He is leading you to another God and not to the true God. And Moses explained to them, the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Robert Trench, in his book on miracles, says, Doctrine must first commend itself to us as good, then a miracle may seal it as divine. He that is of God hears God's word. But the implication is that he who is of God and hears God's word recognizes it and obeys it. As Jesus says of himself, My sheep hear my voice and follow me. So if this is the case, why do we need miracles? Well, I believe that we might say Jesus is to be heard not merely as one who is true, but as he who himself is the truth. In John chapter 5, he says, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In Matthew chapter 11, when John and his disciples are asking about Jesus, and he, he gives them to go see what he has done, what he has accomplished in his works, these deeds confirm that he is the expected one, and there is no other. And the result of miracles is that miracles can claim submission to and reception of and faith in other doctrine. They help us see that Christ's doctrine is true, and yet they lead us on to further faith and submission to his word. The act of faith is to believe what God has revealed and not to lead us, as Paul says in Galatians, to another gospel. And so we must ask when we read about these miracles, as we see these things done, what has come of this? 
Where has it come from? What did it bring about? What is the profit? What is significant? I believe that every true miracle will always be more or less a redemptive act. Not just something wonderful that happens. Not just something that we say, oh, that is amazing. But it brings about redemption for the one to whom it is performed. Not only revealing God's power, but also His grace and manifesting His love. But what about these demons and demon possession? Well, some believe that it is simply a manifestation that comes about because someone has a disease or an illness. Perhaps epilepsy or a palsy or some kind of mania or lunacy. And the result is that they have these convulsions or irrational behavior, maniacal behavior perhaps, that are manifestations of the effect of the disease upon the body and the mind of the individual. But if we read the scripture, we have a real problem with that. Because Jesus either did not know that it was simply a disease or an illness, or he didn't choose to treat them as a disease or an illness and pretended that they were demon possession. Or he, for some reason, didn't want his disciples to know that he knew that it wasn't really demon possession. But in any case, you have a Lord of Scripture who can act a lie. And besides, what we see in this passage and other passages, Jesus distinguishes between the man and the unclean spirit. Those with an unclean spirit were really, I think in Scripture, a special object of Christ's miracles. It's a moral and physical manifestation of sin. There is something which comes upon the man from which the man needs redemption. Even the Jews recognized what was a malady and what was demon possession. And Mark sees these evil spirits as possessing real personality. Jesus speaks here to the demon as a person, as a personality, and not merely personifying a disease. And so we use words like lunatic, and yet we know that there is an illness, but we also know that there is demonic possession. To have devils is the old phrase. It, it, it was something, yes, strange and intruding into the proper domain of the physical and the psychical realm of a person. It's as if the man was singled out as a lion singles out the antelope from the herd for his prey, coming upon him at an opportune time. But we ask the question, is a demoniac only those who are the worst of men, the worst, vilest, wickedest sinner you can think of? And I, I would have to say no. I don't see that in the Scripture. And is demon possession a penalty for sin, 
for his wickedness? Are demoniacs, as some commentators believe, they're the man who has given himself up to the authority and will of the devil? I think we see consistently in Scripture men are in bondage by this possession. Another has come and taken rule and place in his soul, and the man knows it, and he cries out for redemption, cries out for deliverance from these things. There is an intense sense of a need for mercy and a yearning for deliverance. For my own self, I only know, haven't experienced, but only have heard of one case of demonic possession. But we see the intensity, we see the effects of this possession in the scriptures. This power that comes upon them is without them. It's not something as listening to the words of Paul, flee youthful lusts. They can't flee from the, the demon. When it says resist the devil, he cannot resist the, it is a power that they can no longer resist and which will not flee at their command. I believe it's a direct result of what we see predicted in Genesis 3, the warfare that was to come between the seed of woman and the seed of the devil. And only he who is Lord over physical evil and also Lord over spiritual evil is able to conquer the physical and psychical complex strange and inexplicable demonic possession. And that is why we turn to look at Jesus. We look to see how he handled this situation that came about not in his own doing. It, it's an opportunity that presents himself in the language of Mark. And just then, he had just finished preaching and the people were amazed that he had authority, not like the scribes that they were used to. And just then, just then, whether he burst in or whether he was already in the congregation, I, I don't know. What, what we see here is that no one seemed to notice to the point of excluding him from public worship. He was there. But we see that he immediately senses who Jesus is. He senses there is one among them who is stronger than all that he has encountered in his own realm. What do we have to do with you? What do we have in common, Jesus of Nazareth? And I understand that phrase, at least at this time in, in Jesus' ministry, the phrase Jesus of Nazareth was not necessarily complimentary. Some say it's just his common name. Well, that's Jesus, this man who lived in Nazareth. But at this time, I believe it was a derogatory term. Jesus of Nazareth was just, you know, here's this itinerant guy coming around. But the demon senses him. What do we have in common? What, what do you have to do with me? I, I think he knows the answer to that question. I think he senses one whose mission it is to destroy the works of the devil. 
Because he says, have you come to destroy us? I think in, you know, it's hard to tell in the Greek. There's no punctuation there. I, I think it's actually a statement. You have come to destroy us. And what we see, I think, from the demon is, is there are three things that we need to see. First, he has a fierce hatred for the righteous one. He recognizes something about Jesus that is totally different from him. And then he affirms that Jesus has destructive power over the devil. Again, why would he say, you have come to destroy us? He knew. And even if it is a question, again, he knew the answer. And finally, he recognizes Jesus' holiness. He, he, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. And guess what we find in Scripture? Is that whether it's in Matthew or in Luke or in John or in Mark, they all, when they, the demons encounter Christ, they recognize his deity when sometimes no one else does. In Matthew, he's called the Son of God. Here, he is called the Holy One of God. He recognizes the deity of Jesus Christ. He senses who he is and what his mission is. And even though he knows that Jesus is about to pronounce his death now, he wants to continue this unholy war, and yet he realizes Jesus has come to put an end to this holy war. But what was his motive? Why would the demon, if he knows who Jesus is, and he knows the mission that Jesus has to destroy the works of the devil, why would he say anything? Why would he even be in the synagogue? Why would he be in this gathering? I don't know that I can answer the question. The commentators posit a number of different things. Perhaps it's simply abject and servile fear. That there is a paralysis here. There is a sudden understanding of who this man was. Perhaps he reacts or says the things that he does in order to soothe Jesus with his flatteries. I, I know you. I know you're the Holy One of God. I, I know what your mission is. And perhaps he is hoping to avert his certain expulsion. John Calvin writes that perhaps it is to insinuate in men's minds a suspicion that there was some secret standing between him and Christ. Perhaps he is trying to, by crying out publicly, and we understand that the people heard what he said, you are the Holy One of God, that they're looking at the demon, they're understanding what he is, that he comes from the Father of lies, that his his work is deception, and he's saying, oh, if those two are somehow allied, then there is a suspicion on Jesus. Perhaps an attempt to injure his reputation in the hope that the truth might be brought into suspicion if he was attested by an evil spirit of lies. Or perhaps desiring that Jesus will be satisfied with this title 
and not carry on his work in choosing to exercise him. But in any case, Jesus' response is immediate. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet. Literally, it means be muzzled as an ox was muzzled. Be muzzled and come out of him. Is this the result we expected? He has just testified in front of the synagogue, the gathering, that he is the Holy One of God. And yet Jesus' response is, be muzzled. And the demon responds to his rebuke, throws the man into convulsions, tearing him, the language is, tearing him, throwing him to these convulsions. But as we understand from Luke, without per permanent injury, and yet the man, the demon speaks no more. He cries out with a loud voice. It's literally in the Greek, a, a screech. He doesn't say anything, but he does cry out. Again, Trench writes, What the devil cannot keep as his own, he will, if he can, destroy. His purpose was to destroy the man as he was coming out, and yet he obeyed. Be muzzled, Jesus says, and come out of him. Christ is mighty in word and deed, and yet that mighty deed was accomplished with a simple word. Be muzzled. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is speaking against uh, those who would speak, who would talk, who would, I guess we might say, talk a good game. And yet he says, for the kingdom of God does not exist in word, but in power. The demon talked, but Christ acted with power. Putting forth his power by a simple word, exercising the potency of his will on this demon. As Luke calls him, stronger than a strong man armed was Jesus Christ. And for all that we don't understand about demon possession, I think two points can be made here. That the demonized was not set free by any magic, by any formula, by any chocolate-covered pill, by any incantation, but by the word of his power, which he spoke. And two, the demons always obeyed. Without exception, the demons obeyed the word of Christ. The Holy One of God indeed. The one set apart by the Father as Jesus Christ, the Son of God sent by him to do his will, conceived by the Holy Spirit, a sinless man, anointed by the Holy Spirit to do his work, possessed with power, sent to destroy the works of the devil. The Holy One of God has spoken, and the demons shudder and obey. And the people were amazed. It's a different word from what we saw before, the astonishment, the being struck out. It's an idea that they were rendered immovable by this sense of wonder and fear. And they realized that the miracle 
had illustrated his doctrine and illustrates his character and the character of his doctrine. The question is, why do they call it a new teaching? They say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Well, we already know that Jesus taught them with an authority unlike the scribes. They were used to recitations. They were used to people who didn't deviate from the, the, the script and how they taught week after week given to them by their rabbis. And again, what I'm understanding from that is that it was stilted. It, it, it was a stale set of rules that were droned out but here is something fresh. Here is something original. John Calvin says, they trace the glory and the power of the miracle to his doctrine. Do you see? Miracles do not show us anything by themselves. Miracles affirm the doctrine. And the news went out among all in Galilee. The idea is that rumors went out. And I'm sorry, but I think about, you know, the little game we played in school where someone at the head of the line just says a sentence and then they say it to the person in line and they repeat that sentence down the line and at the person at the end of the line they see you know how the sentence actually came across I, some of you may do what i do i read an article on espn and i scroll down to the end and i look at the comments and it's like did you read the same article i read <laughs> there are how was this received? Was it distorted? Was it exaggerated? Was any of it accurate? Again, they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They had a sense of wonder. They were charmed, I think you could say, by what Jesus did. But we know very soon as we read on in Mark, that the Pharisees and scribes will begin to label what he just did as heresy. And I believe the people only asked one question and didn't get to a more important question. They inquired, what is this? But they haven't yet asked, who is this? This is the astonishment that with the authority he spoke. This is what is new, this authority. But even the demons obeyed him. But did anyone else? Did anyone else venture on from the what to the who? James rebukes us, I think, in chapter 2. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe also and they shudder. Here was a man, the Son of God, who was destroying the works of the devil. In 1 John 3, John writes of him, the Son of God appeared for this, or was made manifest for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
And I believe commentator Lenski is right when he says, but he does not destroy the devil's work by means of his omnipotence. He was made manifest. He, the Son of God, was made flesh. He came in human nature in order to destroy the devil himself and the power of death. This is the man. This is the who. We should not stop at the what. We should not be charmed by the miracle. We should not be amazed just and leave it at that, immovable. We move on. Who is this? The miracle showed his power, but confirmed his word, confirmed that he manifested grace and showed the love of God the Father. Move on to who is this? That he who commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to meditate on these things, to chew on these things, that we might understand the truth of them. And Father, as we read, that we would seek to understand what was happening, what these things are. But Father, teach us who you are and who is the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know him, that we might worship him, that we might walk with him. You would build your church and that we might glorify him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from John's epistle, the fifth chapter. He writes, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Amen.